Hey everybody, welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. Hopefully often horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And we're both horror junkies. Horror, horror, horrors. Perhaps. (laughs) Yes, something like that. But we like it from different perspectives and we have different backgrounds on it. Uh, And hopefully you'll find that interesting to hear about. I have always been really big into horror movies and cinema ever since I was a kid, and Cole likes books. Yes. So I kind of have helicopter parents, and I wasn't allowed to watch horror when I was a kid. Um, I was a very anxious child before I was a very anxious adult, and I had a lot of sleep issues, and I think my parents just thought that if I watched too many horror movies, it would just make all of those problems worse. So I primarily focused on reading, and honestly, I didn't even really start reading horror a lot until early adulthood. Yeah, and I grew up on horror. I've watched, like, all the horror movies, and as a kid, always was watching some sort of horror movie. Even as early as 9 or 10, I remember I would basically just stay up late watching this show called USA Up All Night, which uh, was a show from... I want to say like the 80s to 90s, that was hosted by Rhonda Shear and Gilbert Godfrey. Some people might remember it. And I used to get up and sneak into our TV room. Which is a horror movie in and of itself, because I've been to that house and every single floorboard creaks. Yeah, I grew up in a very old um, house in the Midwest. It was, I mean, that probably could have been a set for a horror movie. And so... I would watch this show and they would always do these like double features. It was always back to back and it was either a cheesy 80s style horror movie or these like TNA movies. TNA? Uh, Yeah, tits and ass. Oh. So they were really big uh, back then. Kind of like these softcore trash pictures, which I didn't care about. Which makes sense because you married a man. Yes. So... I would watch these movies and I always really liked them. Even though they were so cheesy, there was just something as a kid which made me just so fascinated by them. And that kind of carried through my whole life. And I just would watch anything that I could find on TV, even to this day sometimes. You know, what I do when I have a little bit of extra time is just browse some of the streaming services, look for horror movies I've never heard about. And if the synopsis is outrageous, I will probably try to watch it. And so that's kind of my background with horror. You know, I really enjoy a lot of the classic movies that are actually good. So George A. Romero, Night of the Living Dead, which is probably my favorite horror movie if I had to pick one. Um, I really like the Vincent Price movies. But I also have uh, an appreciation for, you know, a lot of the movies of my childhood, things like Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, those type of movies. And even into modern horror. There really isn't a genre I don't like on at least some level. So I'm going to talk about some of these movies with you. And hopefully it'll be interesting to see about them because you haven't really seen so many of these movies. I haven't. I haven't. Which seems to shock you on a daily basis. (laughs) And I'll talk to you about books because you don't read like you used to. So I have to tell you these stories so that you can still experience these stories. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you can tell in the title that I'm going to talk about Pet Cemetery today. And it was just really funny because when 
I was first trying to figure out what movie to do for our inaugural episode. Our maiden voyage. I wanted to do Pet Cemetery ultimately for some reasons I'll get into, but I remember we were talking about whether we should discuss the plots of these or give away too many spoilers. And I remember thinking, well, for mine, it's not going to matter because everybody knows the plot to Pet Cemetery, Except me. <laughs> Except for you, apparently. The one person in America that doesn't know the plot to Pet Cemetery. In my defense, I read the blurb on the back of the book, but that was 12 years ago. And yeah. then I never read the book. I mean, that's... It's just uh, mind-blowing to me because I just assumed everybody knew so many of these sort of classic and well-known horror stories. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. I'm not sure if the plot itself is anything groundbreaking, but I'm also looking at it from sort of a retrospective point of view right now. Because now I think you've seen we've seen so much in horror. And I think sometimes when we talk about horror, it's important to realize the difference between looking at it from today and thinking about it in terms of when it was made. And the evolution of horror is something I find fascinating. Yeah, and I like talking a lot about the evolution of horror fiction because what it has been and what it is now are two completely different things. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to think about things that we maybe take for granted as just being traditional or even just like predictable aspects of a horror movie and there was definitely a time when that was shocking and groundbreaking and so i like thinking about things like that and i think a lot of times when people look back at some of the older horror movies they wonder why they were so good or why they were thought of as so disturbing and scary you know i think chainsaw massacre comes to mind with that and it was it is still disturbing to me when i watch it but that was it caused this huge uproar when that that movie came out because of just how sort of raw and terrifying and completely new that was. I haven't seen that one either. Oh my god. That's the one inspired by Ed Gein, right? Well, kind of inspired by him. I think Chainsaw Massacre was inspired, I think, by sort of like a, a, an amalgamation of serial killers. But Ed Gein definitely was, I think, the primary... Gain guy. I actually don't know which one it is. But he's the one who had like skin lamps and stuff, right? Yeah. So okay. he, as far as... Did he have the, like, the, the boob apron? Well, that's in... Um, and the nipple belt? The nipple belt, yes. I don't know about a boob apron, but I know the skin apron is in Chainsaw Massacre. My understanding of Ed Gain, and obviously I haven't researched it because I wasn't planning on talking about it, is that he killed a bunch of people and like skinned them and then made all these trophies like skull ashtrays and stuff. But now I know what I'll be doing in the near future for, <laughs> for a movie so I can talk to you about it a little bit more because that movie is also fantastic. Yeah. But that's one of the big things that draws me to horror and that I really like about horror is thinking about it in terms of sort of what it says about the times. And that's why Night of the Living Dead is one of my favorite movies. It's it's a huge sort of metaphor for a lot of things, for a lot of societal issues at the time, and also for racism. So I'll talk about it at some point. That being said, one of my other favorite aspects of horror movies is just how outrageously bad they can be. And so I do plan on doing and commenting on a lot of those films that are just so bad they're good, and some of them that are just so bad they're so bad. 
<laughs> and so I look forward to talking about those and just the complete ridiculousness that they entail. And the thing is, like, even good horror has complete ridiculousness. And, and that's just, that's my favorite part. I agree. The cheesy lines, the really cheesy death scenes, especially from some of the older ones with bad special effects. Yes. I mean, it's so good. It's so good, but it's also so bad. And I love that. And so I'm going to talk about that a little bit. And even in Pet Cemetery, there are some scenes that are just Choices. so crazy, so weird. And you really do have to kind of think about, like, what were they thinking when they made this movie? And whose choice was this? Well, tell me about Pet Cemetery. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you about Pet Cemetery. But first, I'm going to give you some background information on Pet Cemetery and why I chose to do it as the first episode. And the reason I did, obviously, it's a Stephen King story, and he's a very well-known horror author. But what I found fascinating about Pet Cemetery or find fascinating about Pet Cemetery is that Pet Cemetery was almost not published. And Stephen King wrote Pet Cemetery and then sort of shelved it away in his desk because he thought that it was too disturbing. And he, yeah, he was not going to publish it at all. Normally, he would give all of his drafts to his wife and she would read them and tell him if, if they were good enough to publish. That's and fucking precious. And he didn't even do that with this. So he was like, no, you can't read this book. You can't sit with us. Oh, boy. <laughs> so this is too disturbing for such a delicate flower. My yeah. beloved bride. I don't know if it was that or he maybe that's what a lot of the blurbs say. And let me just back this up with this. All of these information and like factoids I'm getting are not because I'm personal friends with Stephen King and he told me these things. It's. Obviously, because I read them on the interwebs. So if you have a problem with me, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with either Wikipedia, IMDb, Amazon Video, or one of those. So you take it up with them. But you can also let me know if something's wrong. But I think that it was more that he he wrote it and uh, supposedly he thought that the story has no redeeming qualities to it. And nothing matters in it. It's just a spiral into darkness. And because there's no meaning, he thought that it was, I guess, too dark for what he wanted to publish. But it's 2020 and there's no meaning, so... I know. Now we're just like, it's like nihilism all the way. So we love stories like that. So he had Pet Cemetery tucked away in his little desk. But then what happened is he was trying to get out of his contract with his old publisher. And he owed them one more book. And he did not have a book to give them. So he was kind of like rummaging through his desk one day and was like, oh, here's this book that I thought was too dark to ever be published. I'll just give them this. So that's how Pet Cemetery got published. And he even today says that he's still haunted by some of the words from the novel. And specifically, there's this famous line which is said by the neighbor in the story, and it's sometimes Lewis dead is better. And apparently that haunts Stephen King. You wouldn't think that much haunts Stephen King, to be honest. No. And also, like, I don't know. <laughs> I'll say this. Stephen King, it's weird because some of his stories I find completely not scary at all. But I will say that I read some of his when I was much younger, 
And some of those stories haunted me for a very long time, and even still a little bit. I remember reading the Tommyknockers and getting, like, terrified as a kid. It just, like, scared me so much. But then it's like, I remember reading Needful Things, and I liked it, but I didn't find it scary. I just thought it was an interesting story. Yeah. So, but anyways, Pet Cemetery. I actually didn't have never read Pet Cemetery, but I did see the movie, uh, which the original came out in 1989, and... I did not see it in the theater because in 1989, I was not that old. And you couldn't see movies like that. <laughs> and I didn't see it in the theater because I wasn't born. Okay, so the movie, and obviously there was a remake as well, um, which was remade in 2019. And I'll talk a little bit about that just in kind of like comparisons, but I'm mainly going to focus on the original because it is by far the better movie, but also has some of the more ridiculous aspects. So... It came out in 1989. It was directed by Mary Lambert. Interestingly enough, it was originally going to be directed by George A. Romero, but there was something that delayed shooting, and so Romero had to drop out. He went on to direct Monkey Shines, and Mary Lambert stepped in. And I did not know who Mary Lambert was, so I looked her up a little bit, and she's done a lot of TV movies and documentaries and stuff. She also did the Madonna Like a Prayer video. Which oh. I thought was fascinating. Yeah, and lets us know that she's good. Yeah. And to be honest, I remember that video. It's one with the church, and it was really, like, controversial at the time because it's her and this character that I think was supposed to represent, like, Jesus or a saint, and he was black. And it was, like, in, I think, the early 90s, maybe late 80s. So it was, like, a big deal. Yeah. Um. So she did the Like a Prayer video. She also did this television film, which I have not seen, called My Stepson, My Lover. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so that sounds like a really wild ride. And oh, Sounds like Stepson was a wild ride, too. <laughs> but that's something that I feel like I would see. So she did the Pet Cemetery original film. And then in 2019, it was directed by somebody else named Kevin Kolsch. I don't know a lot about him. I'm not going to talk too much about that movie other than to t- say a lot of the changes they made. Yeah. Okay, so before I get into the story of Pet Cemetery, I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about why I chose it, because it's kind of interesting to me. Pet Cemetery is a book that almost didn't get published because Stephen King thought that it was so disturbing that he didn't want to publish it. Hmm. Yeah, I find that fascinating. And normally, he gives his drafts of his manuscripts to his wife and has her read them before sending them off to get published. It's fucking adorable. It really is. But this one, he was like, no, I'm shoving you in the desk and you're not going to go to the public. Um, The manuscript, not his wife. (laughs) Yes. So he didn't want to publish it because he said that he thought it was sort of too dark that nothing works out, everything just spirals into darkness, and the message is that nothing is worth it in the end. Carry on. Yeah, so it's not a feel-good story. But it is fascinating to me, and the reason it got published is because he was getting out of the contract with his old publisher, and he owed them one more book. And it was sort of, have to write a whole new book, or just give him this random manuscript that he had tucked away in his desk. So he did that. And that's the story of how Pet Cemetery got published. But even to this day, he says that he's still sometimes haunted by 
the line in the book, which is from the neighbor, and that line is, sometimes Lewis, dead is better. Hmm. Of all the stuff that is in his books, it's interesting that a line that, I guess to me, feels so mild is the one that he is most haunted by. Yeah, it might be different to once you hear the story of it. Yeah. But it's fascinating to me just because I've read and watched a lot of Stephen King stories. And if you were to not tell me this and just ask me which Stephen King books or movies I thought were the scariest, this would not make the list. But that's just me. It would be it because fucking clowns. Yeah, I mean, it to me, it is far scarier. But, you know, it has... I think more of an uplifting ending and yeah. sort of a good triumphs evil ending. True. Pet Cemetery, spoiler alert, does not have that kind of an ending. So I think that's why he didn't want to, uh, or that's why he says that this is his most haunting or dark story. Oh boy. So I'm going to talk about the original, which was came out in 1989, but there was a remake that came out in 2019 and I'll kind of mention some things about it, but I'm not going to focus on it. I think the original is far better and also has the more entertaining aspects of it to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do that. It was directed by Mary Lambert. Originally, it was going to be directed by George A. Romero, but there was, I guess, a scheduling conflict which delayed filming. So Romero had to drop out and he went on to direct Monkey Shines, which, side note, all of these factoids is not because I'm friends with George Romero or something like that. They are because I've read them on the interwebs. So if you disagree with something, you're free to let me know. But your issue is not with me. It is with Wikipedia or Google or IMDb or something like that. I'm just saying what I read, you know, and that's just what it is. So anyways, so George Romero, who is one of my favorite directors almost directed it which i thought was interesting yeah mary lambert i didn't know about other than i did look it up and she directed the like a prayer video from madonna oh awesome so good credentials yeah i thought that was pretty cool because i remember that video coming out and it was really interesting and then also well known for directing the television film my stepson my lover oh boy Hmm. i haven't seen that one but I sort of feel like it's probably a wild ride. Yeah, it sounds like the stepson was a wild ride, too. Yeah, so anyway, on to the actual story and some of the scenes. And I'm not going to give the play-by-play or anything of this movie. I'm just going to point out sort of the general story and what I thought were some of the noteworthy scenes that may make people laugh or that may be particularly disturbing. But Pet Cemetery, all being said is sort of a classic tale of white flight. <laughs> which is kind of the premise in a lot of horror movies. It's a it's almost a trope at this point where you have the family that moves out to the countryside to live in this big, nice house. I mean, think The Conjuring, Amityville Horror, those type of movies. It's always these people that move into this spooky house and then horrible things happen to them. I would love to live in this spooky house, but not have horrible things happen to me. Yeah, well, in this one, it's not actually the house that has the issue. So I guess that there's that going for it. Except that the house behind it has this, like, pet cemetery, which I guess if people don't know, it's pretty self-explanatory, but is a cemetery with tombstones and everything 
for people in the town to bury their pets in. And I guess that's a thing. It wasn't where I grew up, but I'm a city person, so... Well, and I think a lot of religious-based cemeteries don't allow pets to be buried there. So this allows you to still have a cemetery and have, like, a burial and things like that. Okay, that's all good. But these people moved into a house, and the town is like, by the way, we bury all of our dead pets behind your house. Is that cool? I mean, my mom grew up two houses down from a regular cemetery. That's not the same thing. She didn't shoot. Her house wasn't the cemetery. I'm just saying, don't you think it's kind of weird that people are like, oh, and they didn't know this. Like they bought the house and then they're like, go hiking in the backwoods and they come across this pet cemetery. And the realtor was like, by the way, didn't mention that people bury all their dead animals here. So long, motherfuckers. You know, (laughs) but that's not even the best part, because the other part that the realtor didn't tell them about is that behind this pet cemetery across from this like beaver dam barrier type situation is an ancient Indian burial ground. Of course it is. From the Mi'kmaq Indian tribe, to be exact. I beg your pardon? Yeah, but don't laugh because I looked it up and it's actually a real tribe of First Nation people. Oh, okay. That's less offensive. Well, no, it's still pretty offensive. Carry on. Yeah. I don't know if it's less or more offensive because this burial ground is like a bad thing. Like essentially in the movie, when you bury things there, they come back to life. And so I almost feel like maybe they should have just made up a tribe for that. Because what if the Mi'kmaq people are like, please stop sending us your dead animals. We're not resurrecting them. True. There are a lot of stupid people in the world who might try that. Yeah. And originally in the story, it's not in the movies, but originally in the stories, the whole point is that there was like a Wendigo spirit that made this place have this bad energy and would resurrect people. But for whatever reason, they cut out all of the references to the Wendigo spirit. I don't know if that's because they thought it would just be too complicated. It could not have been for any sort of politically correct reasons because it was 1989 and they had already done the indian burial ground shtick so i feel like at that point you might as well just go all in on it so they must have just thought that it was too difficult to to manage or something like that so whatever you bury there ends up coming back to life and also fascinating this whole story was based on real events from stephen king not that his cat came back to life but in Apparently, he moved out to a house in the country like this with a really busy road, and his cat was hit, and apparently his son was also almost hit because trucks used to speed down this country road. Yeah. So, and there was a real pet cemetery behind his house. So, stuff like that apparently did happen, but I don't think that there was a Mi'kmaq Indian burial ground. Anyway. So, as I just said, basically, his cat gets hit, and then they bury it, and it comes back to life. But it's like a super mean bitchy cat so no difference yeah so like a cat but what's funny is in the original the cat doesn't look that much different he's just kind of scratches some things uh but in the remake the cat looks like super fucked up like clumps of dirt and manginess and nobody mentions that this cat looks all fucking crazy they just think that it's their regular cat it's it's really dumb so Uh, Then essentially what happens is the main character's son, who is, I think, three, 
gets hit by a truck and he dies. And weirdly enough, in the remake, they actually change it so that the daughter dies because she's older. And apparently they just thought that it would be better to have a resurrected zombie eight-year-old than a three-year-old. Also, little kids dying is a downer. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a downer, but little kid zombies are super adorable, as you will about to hear about. So he essentially buries his kid in the pet cemetery, and he comes back to life. And so this is a three-year-old. And he comes back to life, and he immediately kills the neighbor. And it's like like you do. <laughs> yeah. What's kind of funny about it is when he kills the neighbor, the scene is somewhat suspenseful because he takes he ha- the kid has a scalpel that he got out of his dad's doctor's bag, and he's kind of like stalking around the house a little bit, and the neighbor is like knows somebody's in the house but doesn't know exactly what's going on. And it's funny though, because once he does get killed, the kid starts to eat the guy's neck out. But the whole time he's making little like om nom toddler noises. Om nom 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 nom. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of like om nom 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 nom. Like this is good neck. And so it's kind of like weird. And then like the mom comes home. And the <laughs> the best part, this is my fa- honestly, my favorite scene in the entire movie is when the mom comes home to look and try to find him. And the neighbor's dead. And I think she, she finds the neighbor dead. But the best part of the whole thing is the whole time she's looking, she hears these like sort of ethereal child giggles. And then this voice that's like, come play with me, mommy, like that kind of like stuff. But then when she finally sees this three-year-old kid, this is like this like three-year-old, three-year-old zombie child, zombie child. But he doesn't, they just look pale. Like he looks pale, but he's still kind of like blonde hair, blue eyed. But when she finds him. Somehow, he is wearing a green velvet dress, a top hat, and holding a cane. (laughs) Oh, God. It is the most bizarre thing I have ever seen. Because it's like he went from being a zombie child to being this dapper Victorian cosplay gentleman. It's really weird. And then he's like, come play with me, mommy. I have something for you. And he pulls out a scalpel. And then it kind of fades out. Because a lot of times in the 80s when people were killed, they were killed off camera, probably for budget reasons. So then he kills the mom. And the dad ends up finding her. And is like, I'm just going to bury her there too. Like, my zombie son is clearly a demon. My zombie cat is an asshole. My zombie son is killing people. Let's see a third time's the charm. Yeah, and I remember it just, I remember thinking, this is a bad decision. Like, how did you get through medical school, sir? You don't make good choices, like, at all. So he buries his wife, and then in, like, Probably one of the grossest things I have seen in a very long time. Uh, And it's actually kind of like one of the, at the very end of the movie. But she comes back, of course, and it starts with her feet and she's like hobbling. And then it pans up to her face and half of her face is like skinned off somehow. And she has this like special effects pus like oozing out of her like orbital bone, like on the eye socket, 
oozing pus down her entire mouth and face. And he grabs her and then he kisses her. It is so gross to me. And then it that's kind of how it ends. She picks up the knife that's on the table and then it fades out to black and you hear a stabbing sound and he's yelling or something like that. And so there's like, there's no redemption. There's no like good wins or he puts everybody down. It's just kind of like that's that. No, he does actually kill in the original, the cat and the kid, which is weird. Like he, he like lethal injects them. And the kid actually has this phenomenal death scene where it's one of those over the top cartoony deaths where he's doing a twirl and like, Oh, and he says, he actually, the line that he says is no fair, no fair. Oh God. Yeah. Which is interesting because, so if you realize that your kid turned out to be so evil that you had to kill your kid, what would possess you to resurrect your wife after that? The power of love. Yeah. Something like that. In the remake, they have him actually not kill the cat or the daughter Because it's the daughter instead of the son. Yeah. So he doesn't kill the kid or the cat in the remake. And then the ending is a little bit different, but it's, it's definitely nothing to talk about. That, the problem I had with the remake is it definitely went for this whole kind of spookier and trying to be scarier vibe, but I don't necessarily know that they achieved it. Like when they were in the burial ground in the remake, there's this sort of dark filter over everything to let you know that it's like the spooky place. Whereas in the original, it's just kind of a regular place with all these sort of like stone cairns and everything that I guess were supposed to look kind of, I don't know, tribal and whatever, the 80s version of tribal. Yeah. But it was, it's good. And I think like, that's why Stephen King, I think, didn't like it though, is because basically it showed, I think the message is that no matter what this guy does, he can't win. He can't get his family back. Gone is gone. And that if you do try to sort of fight death, then, like, bad things will happen. And I think that's what the line, dead is better, is from. Not whether you find it haunting or not. I don't know about that. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a good story. I definitely recommend seeing it because the cinematography is pretty good in, in the original one. It has that 80s vibe, which I like. And the death scenes, I mean, I described some of them, but I have not done them justice. It is absolutely worth seeing. And if for no other reason seeing that kid in that dress and top hat with the cane. I just... (laughs) Like, if I were to do cosplay, I would cosplay that. That would be so funny. Cosplay the baby. Cosplay the baby in the top hat and the dress. People would probably just think you're like a steampunk person. Anyway, that's Pet Cemetery and all the funny, like, kind of weird bits to it. But also, it... It does have a little bit of uh, terror to it. You know, there are some suspenseful moments. The remake relies a little bit more on jump scares, which, you know, are not my favorite scare. Yeah. They're just kind of a cop-out. I kind of agree. I mean, a well-done jump scare is fine, but I feel like sometimes people rely on jump scares to make otherwise not scary movies have this anxiety-inducing effect that they hope people will mistake for fear. Anyway. Well... Couple of things. First of all, I do not want that man to be my doctor uh, (laughs) because he makes very poor choices. Again, oh, my zombie cat was horrible and my child was horrible. Let's see if it works with my wife. Like, no, I'm sorry. If something hasn't worked twice, please don't do that to me. So I don't want him as my doctor. 
Also, it was very rude while you were talking about it. And I looked up a picture of the child in the dress. And I just have to say that the mother may be dying, but I am living for it. I love it. <laughs> he really is like serving a look at that point. It's like little, little it's baby's first pimp cane. The weird thing is, it's like, where did he get these clothes? Because I don't think they show what he's buried in. But under no circumstances was that baby buried in a top hat and a cane. Now, I do realize that sometimes Catholics use dresses for young children. I know there's like a, and I say this because I grew up Catholic, but I know there's like a first communion dress and a baptism dress. Like they put babies in dresses. So maybe there's some sort of burying your baby in a dress. But there is no way that they buried that child in a top hat and a cane. And his little hand doesn't even really cover the top. It's adorable. I'm sorry. I love children. Yeah. So that, of course, is the best. It comes out of nowhere. So the funny thing about it is it's this very suspenseful scene. And then all of a sudden you see this kid. And I was just like, what? It's like a little off the shoulder number too. I love it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's great. That that in and of itself, that moment would be an incentive for me to see the movie. Yeah, I agree. And we'll probably post a picture of it on social media for people that are interested in seeing that. Anyway, (laughs) tell me about what you're going to talk about. Well, do I have a treat for you. This week, I'm doing Curse Be the Child by a man named Mort Castle. Okay, that's definitely a fake name. Uh, I googled it and I could not find anywhere that it is a pseudonym. He's written scholarly work and he has taught under the name Mort Castle. Hmm. Also, Cursed Be the Child sounds a little bit like an 80s ballad to me. Cursed Be the Child, that's like the way that people talk when they're um, trying to do like old-timey British accents and stuff, right? There's like old-timey stuff, just not British. Okay. The cover is really delightful. I kind of want to talk about it very briefly. There is a pram on the front. A pram? I don't know what a pram is. Perambulator. Like, it's for babies. Um, I mean, I can see the cover right now, so I know what you're talking about, but I've never heard that term before. A pram is like a stroller, but it's the kind where you lay the baby down and you have the little, like, shade that flips up. It looks super old-fashioned. Oh, like the creepy strollers. Yes, like creepy strollers. Okay. Exactly. I think the difference is that, like, the child is laying down, not sitting. You don't see them a lot anymore because most of the time it's just, like, a stand that people will put a car seat in. And that, like, makes a pram, but... Also, if I saw somebody walking down the street or, like, in the store with their child and that, I mean, to be honest, I would love it. But I feel like they would get a lot of stares. Yeah, it's, like, super gothy realness, Pram. What's really great is if you look closely at the baby hand that's sticking out, there's, like, three-inch drag queen nails. <laughs> Wait, are are those acrylics? Uh, yeah, pretty, yeah, it's, like, three-inch neon green nails. And also, there's just, like, this weird glow Inside of it. Someone is making sure that that baby is done up. The But I think what's really, like, the best for me in this is that there is not a baby in this book. Wait, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> there's children. Like, there's children in the book. But the youngest is, like, five. And, and you it- only use a pram for, like, infants. Right. So the cover art just has nothing to do with the story. Exactly. Except it looks gothy and creepy. Okay. It's great. It's lovely. I tried to find out who does the cover art, and I couldn't find anything online. Mind you, I looked for like 10 minutes. I 
probably could have lived longer. But let me read the blurb to you. This I'm I'm so excited about this book. It's it's a doozy. Okay. The past. Her innocence betrayed, her body battered, her life destroyed. Five-year-old Lizette lay dying. But hers was a will of uncommon strength for one so young, and even as she slipped into unconsciousness, she vowed revenge on a cruel world, even if it meant she had to wait an eternity. The present. Five-year-old Melissa loved her family's new home, especially the big basement to play in, and her new friend Lizette. Missy's parents said Lizette was imaginary, but Missy knew that she was very real. Missy could see and hear and talk to her, but Lizette made Missy do scary things, dirty things she didn't want to do. And when Missy told her to leave, Lizette wouldn't go away. Lizette had waited years for a child who stole she could steal, and now nothing, not even death, could stand in her way. I'm getting like weird sexual vibes from that blurb. But maybe it's the way you're reading it. No, no. Because the tagline on the front, because yes, I'm just going to describe this entire book for you. The tagline on the front is a terrifying novel of unnatural passion and unspeakable possession. And this book's main character is a five-year-old child? Yes. Okay. I mean, the 90s were kind of a weird times, right? Like, okay, let's continue. Let's talk about the story. Well, (laughs) the thing is, this book is such a wild ride that I can't even get to the story yet because I need to read the foreword from the author to you. Okay. Because I'm just, I, and I won't do this every time, I promise. Anyway. Another word or two on Curse Be the Child. Though the gypsy customs and beliefs in this book are based on extensive research, there have been times when I've created a gypsy saying or fable. Artistic license? It's said that when the film King of the Gypsies was being produced, The gypsy consultants were more than willing to make up old gypsy tradition on the spot. And I've assumed the same freedom. Oh my god. (laughs) This is a white man. So that's right, folks. Category is cultural appropriation. I mean, I guess in 1990 it was a little different. I mean, clearly, now we don't use the word gypsy. Yes, we say Romania, which is what I will say literally every other instance. I was just quoting. But I love the fact that he needs to write a foreword to tell people that he has the right to make up a Romani slash gypsy tradition and custom and folklore. Because they do it, so he can do it too. That's usually the logic that you use in that type of situation. Uh, there's another paragraph. Oh, God. <laughs> Though the book deals with powerful sexual topics, child abuse, molestation, pedophilia, and incest... There are no scenes in this book that graphically depict sexual activities between adults and children. More often than not, such scenes are suggested rather than narrated at all. I mean, I guess that's good. I'm not sure why that disclaimer needs to exist. Why not just not have pedophilia in your book? Well, speaking of disclaimers, this is a really wonderful moment to go ahead and say, content warning, I will be talking about scenes in this book that deal with pedophilia and deal with child sexual abuse. I just want to give anyone listening a heads up. If that is a trigger for you, I will not be offended if you stop listening. And we'll see you next episode. I mean, but if the book, if the scenes aren't described, they're just implied, I'm assuming it's not that triggering. I mean, I'm still going to be talking really frankly about it, though. Well, 
That's fine. I'm prepared for that. So let's have a quick little rundown of characters in this book so that I can just like roll through them pretty quickly. So we have Lizette, who is the child in the past. The book opens with her laying on a bare mattress in the basement, talking about how much her insides hurt because her uncle has raped her so much. Okay, and what time period are we talking about here? Oh, 1918. So 1918 to 1990 are my two time periods. And then we're treated to just, like, she's, like, moaning for her mother to come and help her. And her uncle comes down the stairs, grabs her by the hair, and smashes her face into the concrete floor until she dies. Okay. Well, it sounds uplifting. And that's the opening scene of the book. (laughs) Then we have Missy. So now we're in the 1990. The only scene that takes place in the past is the opening scene. Okay. So now we're in 1990, give or take. I can't remember if it's 89, but the book was published in 90. So it's just easier to stick with that. And we have Missy. And Missy has been talking to Lizette's ghost. And our first interaction with Missy is when her mother comes in to check on her and says, shouldn't you be going to sleep? And Missy goes, I'm not sleepy. I'm horny. Wait, the five-year-old says that? Yes. It's apparently excused because like a classmate had heard the word and was repeatedly saying, I'm horny, I'm horny, I'm horny at school that day or daycare or whatever the fuck. Let's continue. But let's continue. So we have Missy's parents. Their names are Warren and Vicky. And then really the only other person that I will talk about enough that you need to know his name is Vicky's brother-in-law, and his name is Evan. I call him Preacher Evan because he is a televangelist. Okay. All right. Are you ready? For the story? Sort of the story. I'm actually not really going to talk. The story is pretty basic. Lizette takes over Missy, Mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of people have to collaborate together to try and free her of that possession. Uh, So she's like full demonic possession. By the end of it. Yeah. She's like fully possessed. She attacks her mom. She casts a spell on preacher Evan to like make him lust after her. I just feel like this story is problematic from like many angles. Yeah. I feel like the sexualization of children is a problem. Keep in mind, Missy is five. There is a scene where she has slipped one of her hairs into the collar of his shirt, and then she starts to seduce him, and he snaps out of it, but only once she has opened his pants and started jerking him off. A five-year-old? Yes. I just don't think that this book is okay. It's not. Should I stop? (laughs) Is it scary? Like, is the story scary? I mean, there's, like, typical, like, normal horror, like, child possession-ish scenes. Like, there's a scene where Missy is playing with one of her friends upstairs and she's like, oh, I have something in my dresser that I want to show you. Come see. And she opens the dresser drawer. The friend reaches inside and she repeatedly slams her friend's hand in the drawer. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I was not expecting this much um sexuality. I mean, the movies from this time period are all sort of sexually charged, I guess. So that makes sense because you have, you know... Everyone on Friday the 13th at Camp Crystal Lake banging each other's brains out and then they get killed and there's that whole trope about, you know, if you're having sex in the horror movie, you're dying and the virgin is usually the final girl. But I didn't realize the books were so sort of sexual. I don't know that all of them are. Keep in mind, this is the first one I read for this podcast. Yeah. 
Uh, so I don't necessarily know that all of the ones from this time period... I mean, I know a lot of them are sexually charged, but I don't necessarily know that they deal with children in such a way. I wasn't prepared. <laughs> yeah. um, so now I feel like you understand why, as I'm sitting next to you reading it every, like, ten minutes, I was just like, oh boy. That's a lot. But it's cool. There are other oh boy scenes that don't deal with child molestation. For example, someone tries to kill Preacher Evan, and it, as he's, like, calming her down and, you know, dealing with her... He is able to, through his faith, detect that she has AIDS um, and praise it away. It's cool. All you need is Jesus. And then he transports to a psychic plane and battles the demon that is whispering in her ear to make her want to murder him. So he just, like, cures her all together. And then she's basically his loyal servant. Oh. My God. It's great. It's, like, peak paperback horror of just like it's so balls to the wall insane and that was honestly my favorite part about it is because it was unpredictable even the whole like she sticks her hair in preacher evan's collar to cast a spell on him there had been no indication that possessed missy had had any magical powers at all whatsoever and there's no indication afterwards there's just that one single scene of like let me pluck a hair from my head and then you will want my five-year-old body. Yeah, I mean, the book is a little all over the place and, like, not good places. No. And, like, the the hero is this Romani woman who has renounced her past but then has to embrace her d- true destiny as, like, a Romani witch. Okay. To come and save Missy. I feel like there are a lot of girls that went to high school on Facebook who are doing that exact same thing right now, though. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's embracing their Romani heritage these days. All right. But I want to break down the multiple points in this book where I feel like Mr. Castle didn't warn us enough with his foreword. Okay. So there's a scene in which Missy is sleepwalking because she's possessed. She goes down to the basement, and then we are treated to an extremely graphic reliving of Lizette's sexual assault and torture. (sighs) A quarter of the way through the book, Warren, Missy's father, gets drunk, admits that he is a pedophile, and then wonders why he is sexually attracted to his five-year-old daughter. This seems a little bit... Look, I don't want to badmouth this author because he could be like this great guy who thought that these topics were super edgy at the time, but it seems a little weird, like, writing about a fantasy or something. I don't know. I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to get into it, but it's like very disturbing and problematic to me. That's fine. There's more. We can cut as many of these things out (laughs) as you want, but I just want to tell you about all of them. Okay. So there is a scene where Warren and Vicky have sex. She's his wife. So that is fine. Yes. It's very explicit. That's also fine. It's extremely rough. That's also fine. Like, um, yeah. whatever you're into. Um, the fact that he strokes her hair and calls her his little girl afterward is uh, also kind of fine, but this happens after he admits that he's a pedophile. I mean, role play between consensual mm-hmm. adults, I think, is okay. There's a chapter later where she's like, it made me feel so warm and fuzzy because he called me his little girl. 
I felt so cherished. If the if the pedophile stuff weren't there, I think that that would be okay. Well, that's fine because later Warren goes on a trip to the mall because he wants to test just how sick he is in the head. So he goes to try and find a child that has lost their parents to see if he can resist the temptation to kidnap them and rape them. What? The look on your face is great. Yes. It's literally a scene. Like he goes and he finds a five-year-old girl who can't find her mother and challenges himself to go up and talk to her and then is really proud of himself because he takes her to a mall security person to help find her mom instead of kidnapping her and raping her. So he's the hero of the story. Exactly. Because he's resisting his urges. This is this story is a lot. Yeah, there's also a scene where Missy plays doctor with her friends, but we're... But, except it's not doctor. I think it's like, you're going to be Lizette, and I'm going to be Lizette's uncle. And then she starts molesting her friend. They're five. Yeah, I mean, it seems like... Obviously, I have not read this book. It seems a little bit like the author is kind of normalizing pedophiles and then also sort of like championing them a little bit by being like but the good ones resist their urges you know what i think my problem is i think that it almost seems to follow that narrative of like pedophilia is an illness that people have and so you just have to resist it and those pedophiles are okay well maybe i've been too enthusiastic in my sharing They're never painted in a positive light. These scenes are... None of them are written to titillate. It's just I genuinely feel like there's just too much of it. I mean, it sounds like that's all of it. and even it's a 350-page book. Yeah, but then... So it's like... There are scenes of cultural appropriation, too. Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, I don't think a lot of people are going to want to read this book. No. It's very intense. Literally, the only redeeming quality is that it is such a wild ride and you genuinely just don't know what to expect. Though obviously now you know you can expect cultural appropriation and child abuse. Yeah. But like there are the scenes where like Lizette attacks her friend and attacks her mom and like things like that. So you still get those like traditional shocking possessed child scenes. Oh, that's a lot, man. I don't know. (laughs) So... In terms of horror elements to this book, Uh she's obviously possessed. So is it kind of like an exorcist style possession or is she just kind of normal? Have you seen The Exorcist? Yes. Okay. Seen The Exorcist. Well, I have to ask. Well, she's never been tied down or she's never tied down in it. There is an exorcism in it. Mm -hmm. I won't say whether or not it's successful. And her behavior obviously changes and it is kind of a progressive behavior change throughout the course of the novel yeah i kind of jumped in too much with how absurd the amount of sexual scenes how absurdly high the amount of sexual scenes are i kind of jumped in too much with that but if you take all of those out it still has that horror movie or horror novel possession Escalating, escalating, gets really bad. You have an exorcism scene and kind of the come down from that. Yeah. So I think I focus too much on the the scenes that are just so insane. But really, 
underneath all of those scenes, it still has a good horror story. I just feel like the scenes are superfluous. And I feel like as much as there's not super graphic descriptions, like the, there's a very distinct difference between the descriptions of child abuse and the description of the sex scene between Warren and Vicky. Like there's a very distinct difference in how explicit the two scenes are. But even then, it's just, there's just more detail that I think is necessary. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I wouldn't say that that topic is, like, off limits. Like, you can never write about it. But it does seem like it's a lot to me from the way that it's being described. There's, yeah, there's a lot of it in the book. And it's very intense. And I, like, I felt dirty reading some of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Curse Be the Child. That's a lot. That's um, <laughs> that's very different, I guess, than than Pet Cemetery, which has no sex in it or anything. But yeah, no, that um, I don't even know what to say about that. To be honest with you, it's just too much pedophilia, as if there is like an ideal amount of it. Well, the only ideal amount is zero. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But even if, say, you are using it as a plot device, like, clearly the trauma from Lizette's abuse is why her spirit is possessing Missy and attacking adults. Even if you wanted to do that, you don't need so many scenes. You don't need the father to be a pedophile. Like, you can just have Lizette's uncle be a pedophile. You can reference it, and that can be that. I feel like if you are writing a story about adults who sexualize children and they are not the villains of that story and very clearly vilified, there is a problem with that story. Warren is pretty vilified. He's just... He's vilified more as kind of like, the derpy dad can't be a very good dad, so not very well. Yeah, I don't think that that's vilifying somebody enough. But I just want to make sure that you understand that he's not like... He's definitely not the hero. Yeah, I didn't think that, but I don't know. I mean, I think anytime, I feel like we say pedophilia, like we're saying it every third word, but every time you're talking about pedophilia, I think you have to be very clear that it is not okay. Yeah. I don't think this book would fly now. Oh, absolutely not. Even if it was published by a very small publishing house and... You know, very few people read it. I feel like word would spread very quickly about this book. And I feel like it would get very bad press very fast. There would be BuzzFeed articles. There would be, like, everything. Like, people would be very upset about it. I mean, honestly, even the Romani slash Gypsy stuff, I feel, would cause problems. Yes. I've forgotten about that at this point. (laughs) I told you. (laughs) I told you it's a wild ride. Anyway... As far as a rating I might give it, simply because there is still a coherent horror storyline and because the kind of wild ride of not knowing what to expect next, even child abuse taken out of it, it's still a super wild ride. I would give it three out of five superfluously glowing carriages. That's I mean, that's better than average, right? Well, no, that's pretty average. I'm doing, like, five is middle ground. Like, it's okay. Wait, you're giving it three out of five or three out of ten? Three out of five. 
Yeah, so that's like a little above average. Because average would be 2.5. Well, yeah, but I'm not going to do like decimals. Oh, okay. Like 2.5 kids. But yeah, that's that's about all I have for the wild ride that is Curse Be the Child. But I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. If you were a character in Pet Cemetery, would you have died? Would I have died? Um, probably most of the people in Pet Cemetery actually do die. And I feel like maybe that creepy Victorian child would have killed me after he came back. So I'm going to say yes. I probably would have been killed in Pet Cemetery. Would you have been killed in Curse Be the Child? Absolutely. I definitely would have been killed in it. Because in a not at all like Warren and completely healthy for an adult way, I adore children. And I think that they can do no wrong. So Missy could literally be choking me and I'd be like, it's fine. It's fine. She doesn't understand that she's doing something wrong. I just realized we both did creepy children's stories in a way. It was unintentional, but it worked. Anyways, that's it for the first episode ever of Second to Die. Thank you for joining us. If you want to... Contact us. You can email us at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at secondtodiepod. And you can message us on Instagram as well. We'll be checking that. And soon to be on Facebook and Twitter, I believe. Yes. It's just Instagram was the easiest thing to set up immediately. But once those other ones are set up, we will tell you that as well. All right. We will see you next week for another movie. And another story. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.